Well, good morning. How many know that in life there's moments where we have great anticipation for the excitement to come, but at the same time, we have a great nervousness about what's ahead? How many have ever experienced moments like that? You know, I had one standing about in this location about 23 years ago as a young lady walked through those, those doors. And I was about to commit my life to love and cherish her. It was great anticipation. I remember the moment I was, I was like very excited of the, the moment that was to come. But I also was extremely nervous. I even remember thinking, what in the world am I doing? I don't think I know what I'm doing. Maybe you guys are Niners fans. Who's a Niner fan in here? Who's a Dallas Cowboy fan? Whoa, then we got a contingent right over here. See the, see the Dallas guys stay together, you notice that? They're so scared of the Niner fans that they have to, no, I know, I know my buddy Jefferson, Josephine, representing. Well, good luck to you all. I have no skin in the game. My Jets were eliminated a while ago. But, but on, on a day like this, we have great anticipation, right? Great excitement about what might be to come for our team. But there's also a great nervousness about what might happen with our team. You know, as we approach this book called Revelation, I believe that the church should have that attitude. Should have an attitude of, of great anticipation. Imagine receiving this letter for the first time, as was the experience for the early church. They experienced being given a letter of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And they were like, wait, we, we understood Jesus already lived, and, and he walked on the earth, and, and we, we, we have records, and we have testimony, and we have some written down gospels of his life, and his death, and his resurrection. What is this new revelation of Jesus all about? What is in this? What is contained within the words of this book? And so there was great excitement and anticipation as the church received this letter. But I'm sure there was a bit of nervousness. Like, what is it going to call for from us? What, what is it going to say is our responsibility in response to such a great Savior that we have in Jesus? And so as we approach this book, and I think Kurt did a really good job of, of setting the stage last week, we need to be coming with a, with a level of excitement and anticipation for what's contained within. But we also need to have a healthy nervousness, if you will. A healthy sense of, oh man, there's weight to this. There's something that God wants to convey to me and to you and to the church that's weighty, that's heavy, that demands our attention and our respect. You know, I took my son skiing on Friday. My son Drew, he's way better than me now. He's 13. He's already passed dad up on skill level on the slopes. But I got off a lift. It's called Sky Express at Heavenly. Beautiful, beautiful. If you get a, a snowbird blue day, for those of you guys who saw the pictures I posted online, but we got off the lift, and you're up over 10,000 feet in the Sierras. And you're looking down on Lake Tahoe like a little dot down there. 
And there's a healthy sense of excitement about the joy that's going to be yours on the slopes that day. But there's also a healthy level of nervousness, knowing that, wait a second, I'm a year older. Do I really remember what I'm doing? Are these skis going to stay on? Am I going to hit a bump and go flying? There's a sense of nervousness and a healthy level of respect for what I'm about to partake in. My son had none of that. He just zipped right down the slope, out of view, and I was like, where'd he go? To be 13 again. But God wants us, as we approach this book, to to have that sense of excitement about what he's going to reveal, but at the same time, to show a healthy level of respect. Join me in uh, Revelation. We're going to start in in verse 7 this morning. We're going to read the rest of chapter 1 together. So we're in Revelation 1, beginning at verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe, with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. When I saw him, I fell. At his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The secret of the seven stars you saw on my right hand And of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord this morning from Revelation chapter 1. You know, John was an interesting character in the Bible. He wrote for us five different books that we have in our New Testament. Of course, he wrote the Gospel of John which is uh, 
uh, a work that he did in, in, in just sharing with the church all that he had witnessed in the life of Jesus. He was one of the inner three. He was not only one of the 12 disciples, he was one of the inner three that were invited into where Jesus raised the Jairus' daughter from the dead. Only three disciples were allowed into that moment. He was one of the three that witnessed the transfiguration on the mountain, where Jesus peeled back the flesh that he was veiled in and showed them his glory. He was one of the three that were invited into opportunities to witness things up close. And he shared through his gospel of John those things. He also wrote for us three epistles to the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And of course, he wrote here in Revelation. What were the themes of the gospel of John? It was to believe. He wanted the church, he wanted mankind to believe. You remember the famous John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John wants us to believe in Jesus. He wrote the epistles so that we would be sure of this salvation, that we would have confidence, be certain in our faith and live it out, And he wrote the book of Revelation so that the church may be ready. Be ready for the return, for the realization of all that Christ had promised in the end. The Gospel of John focused on a life received. The epistles on a life revealed. And Revelation on a life rewarded. The Gospel of John focuses all of its attention on salvation, the salvation of man, the epistles on sanctification or growth to become more like Christ as we journey through this life. And in Revelation, he focuses on the sovereignty of Almighty God. Nothing is outside of his control. Everything is preordained by a God who controls the affairs of man. The Gospel of John emphasizes Jesus as the prophet. He is the prophet, the one with the word who became flesh. The prophetic word of God. In the epistles, he is the priest. He is the great high priest. He is the intercessor between God and man. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is revealed as the almighty king on his throne. You know, John wrote Revelation in about A.D. 95. Jesus lived between, you know, around the AD zero. There is no AD zero. It was BC and then AD, right? So many scholars believe he was born around BC four or five. He was about 30 when he began his ministry, so that puts him about AD 26 or 27. Likely, he went to the cross around AD 30. He is writing this on the island of Patmos 60 plus years after the events that we read about in the Gospels. John lived a very long life. He was one of the few. He was actually one of the only of the 12 to not be martyred. He lived and he wrote during a time where the Roman emperor Titus Flavius Domitian, 
very fancy name. But he was one of the Caesars that reigned from Rome. Listen to what he decreed. He insisted that he be worshipped as Lord and God. It's a little bit pompous, is it not? For any man to get up and say, you must bow down to me and worship me as the Lord of the empire and as the God of this realm. And of course, those who had placed their faith in Jesus could not submit to that. And their refusal to do that subjected them to severe persecution in that day. John was no exception. As most of the 12 disciples had already been martyred, John, because of God's grace in his life, was allowed to persist and live on. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, wrote that John was actually dipped in burning oil. Boiling oil. That he was placed in that oil, and he came out unharmed. God supernaturally preserving this man's life. And so he said, fine, I can't kill him, so I'm just going to banish him to Alcatraz. Literally, this was the Alcatraz of that day. It was an island off of Greece in Asia Minor. It was a place where convicts would go to just rot and die as they had to mine for the different minerals that the empire would use and harvest. It was forced labor. It was a labor camp. This was no retreat center for John. This was no easy time for John in his life. Remember, this man is in his 70s. How many are in your 70s? How many love their comfortable Serta mattress? It's not Serta? Whatever, apostropedic. I don't How many love the comforts that we have in this life? I'm sure John did too in his 70s, but no, he, he wasn't afforded that. He was placed in a hostile work environment, a place where you had no rights, a place where the, the convicts surrounded you, and, and it was a horrible place to go. And yet God allowed him to go to this place because he had a special vision that he wanted to give him. This is a book born out of suffering. You need to understand that the church was being persecuted. John was being persecuted. Sometimes I think we come to Revelation and go, man, he must have been at his couch and receiving this beautiful vision. That wasn't the case at all. My question this morning is this. I want you to focus on how can faith endure in such times as tremendous trials, hardship, and persecution? In this world, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus said. And he said it to his disciples. He said it to you and me. In this world, you will have trouble. Raise your hand if you had no trouble. Are Jesus' words true? So the question is this. What are you looking to for security, for confidence, and for hope? I sure hope it isn't the Niners winning. As much as you might like them Niners or Cowboys, if we're placing all of our security in that, we are to be pitied because that will fail us. Trust me, I'm a Jets fan. I know failure. Verse 7. Let's, let's dive through this together. Look, he is coming with the clouds. That's what John's vision is. Think about this. His confidence, 
Look, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who have pierced him. All the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain, John says. Amen. So be it. Let it be so. There is a confidence in Jesus' second coming. John was in the upper room when Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. You trusted in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back. I will return so that you can be where I am. This is the confidence that John heard in Jesus, and now he got to witness. The return of Jesus Christ is a sure thing. Church, we need to have that as our confidence, as our hope, as our assurance. This is not, by the way, the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is a time where God is going to take those that are trusting in him secretly away from this world. We're going to be gone in the blink of an eye in a moment. It's going to be like a thief in the night. Thieves don't announce their arrival. You ever notice that? My son had a car out in front of the house and it had a catalytic converter on it. Well, the catalytic converter is no longer with us. It's with the thief. He didn't call me ahead of time. He didn't say, hey, I'm coming tonight to steal your stuff. Otherwise, I would have been doing what? Waiting for him with Alex's shotgun. Right? To defend property and life, that's the American way. No, I wasn't prepared for that. The Bible depicts a moment where the church needs to be ready because Christ can return at any moment. And he will. No, this moment is depicted in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. This is the second coming of Christ. This is the moment where when the disciples were looking up because Jesus had just been taken up into heaven. The angels appeared and said, men of Galilee, why do you still stand there looking stupid? This same Jesus who just left this way is also going to come back this way. In a visible way. And his feet will land on the Mount of Olives and he will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He will reign on the throne of David. So that moment is what is depicted here. It's the second coming. John says... He is coming, and every eye will see him. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are Greek letters in the Greek alphabet. Alpha is the first letter. Omega is the last letter. What's being depicted here? He is the first. He is the last. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is eternal. There is no start for God. There is no finish for God. He is beyond time. That blows my mind. Does it you? I can't fathom that. But that's who he is. That's who we worship. A God that is bigger than anything we know. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation. Now John is writing. He's saying, I'm writing this. I'm your brother. I'm not something beyond you. I'm equal with you. I'm a brother in Christ, and I'm a partner in tribulation. 
and endurance in the kingdom that are yours in Jesus. He's going through suffering as well, and he wants the church to know it. And I was in spirit on the Lord's day. How is he in spirit? How can he worship in spirit and in truth? He wrote those words, John 4, 24, that worshipers need to worship in spirit and in truth. John was in the truth, but he was also able to be in the spirit. How? How? He was on an island. He was being persecuted. He was being, he didn't have a sort of mattress, but he still found a way to say, God, I'm going to worship you in spirit. I'm going to be ready to be a worshiper. How could he do it? This is how John believed with all of his heart, what we just read, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is coming again, that Jesus is in control. No matter how crazy things get, Jesus is in control. There's nothing that is beyond God's control. And he finally believed that there will be a day of reckoning. That his circumstances on that island, that his mistreatment, it would one day be rewarded. It would one day be set right. John had that conviction and that belief. That, that allowed him to be ready to receive what God wanted him to receive. Do we? Do we have that conviction? That Jesus is coming again. That Jesus is in control. Are we ready to receive what he has for us? Verse 10, I was in spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. And it said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were seven churches in Asia Minor, that area where there was Jews and Gentiles both. The number of seven is very significant throughout this book. It's a number that signifies completion, things coming to fulfillment or to a fullness. In Revelation, you'll see lots of sevens. There were seven churches here. There are seven blessings. There are seven seals. There are seven trumpets. There are seven bowls or vials of God's wrath. There are seven stars, as mentioned. There are seven lampstands. Seven is throughout the book, and it's intentional. This book is to communicate that God is going to bring things to a completeness. His plan that started before the foundations of the earth were laid are now going to come to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. What is God's voice asking you to do? Imagine hearing God's voice. John heard the voice like a trumpet. And it said, write down these things that you're about to see because I want to leave a record for the church, my people. What is God asking you to do? Are you a true worshiper who not only listens for God's voice, but obeys when he speaks to you? James chapter 1, verse 22, James was the brother of Jesus, and he wrote these words, but be doers of the word, not just hearers only, and deceiving yourselves. God is not looking for you to just some, come and sit and listen to his word. He's here, and he's instructing you to listen and then obey, to live it out. You know, the church has so many problems. Why? Because we just become hearers of the word and not doers. Are you taking action with the word of God 
or are you simply letting it go in one ear and out the other? God is looking for those who will obey what he has to say. And John was certainly doing that. Verse 12, I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. Now you need to understand something. John was a Jew. John experienced temple life. John was a student of the Old Testament. He read and understood the scriptures of his day. And what he's seeing was quite familiar to him. Because what he's seeing existed in the temple of God. You know, in Exodus, Moses was given instructions. Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. He was given instructions to create a lampstand with seven lamps on it. And to place it in the temple or the tabernacle of God. And at the end of the instructions, God said, make sure you do it exactly as you were shown on the mountain. When he went up on Mount Sinai and met with God, God gave him these instructions. Why? Because he was producing on earth a reality that exists in heaven. The tabernacle and the temple and everything in it represents a spiritual reality that exists beyond eternity. John was receiving this vision and he was like, oh my goodness. I'm seeing one Like the Son of Man, the Son of Man, a reference back to Daniel, chapter 7. And he was dressed with a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. What kind of garb or outfit is this? This is a priestly outfit. This is a priestly adornment. The high priest. Now listen to this very carefully. In Leviticus chapter 24, it instructs Aaron, who was the high priest at that time, to do something very important within his duties in the tabernacle. Do you know what it was? He was to make sure that the light on the lampstands, the lights on the lampstands, never ran out of oil, that they never went out before the Lord. His job was to make sure that the lights were shining before the Lord as a testimony to all the people all the time. Aaron, the high priest, served as the vessel that God used to make sure the light wouldn't go out. Here, John receives a revelation of Jesus being the high priest, of Jesus being the one to make sure that the light of his churches, the seven lamps, would never go out, and that they would always receive the oil of the Holy Spirit at all times so that their light could so shine among men that they might see their good works and bring glory to the Father in heaven. Jesus is the high priest. Verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. I'm going to skip down to verse 20. The secret of the seven stars, remember, Revelation is full of symbolism. It's not to be taken literally. 
Verse 20 proves that. It says, remember the seven stars you saw? They represent a spiritual reality, a real thing. And what that thing is, is they represent the angels or messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands that you saw in your vision, they are the seven churches that you're writing to. They represent the witness of Christ on the earth. Now, again, John was familiar with the Old Testament. We as the church need to get a little bit of glimpse of John going, wait a second, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Daniel also received a vision. As I kept watching, Daniel says, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days, that's a title for God, the God of heaven. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head was whitest wool. Wait a second. Didn't John just have that vision? His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000. Anybody a mathematician? What's 10,000 times 10,000? That's a one with eight zeros. That's a hundred million. A hundred million, that's just an estimate probably, stood before him. And the court was convened and the books were opened. Listen to me very carefully. John presents Jesus as God and as judge. This picture of Daniel that John is seeing represented as Jesus being the, the ultimate judge. He even said, what did Jesus said? He says, I hold the, the keys to hell, to Hades. I'm the one who either allows people in to heaven or have to spend a lifetime and eternity paying for their sins themselves in hell. Jesus is the judge and he has the authority. John is seeing this vision, and he's relaying this to the church. You need to understand Jesus for who he truly is. He is the great high priest. He is the intercessor. The priest served, the high priest served as the intercessor between God and man. Nobody could enter God's presence except for the high priest. And through the high priest, the people could have their sins forgiven. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, when the high priest entered and sprinkled the blood of the goat onto the altar. And God would look at that sacrifice and he'd say, that's good. For one more year, I will overlook and, and I will forgive your sins as a people. And the Bible says in Hebrew that we don't no longer need a goat. Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial goat. He's also the scapegoat. He fulfills the day of atonement. And his blood was spread over the altar in heaven so that all of our sins would be forgiven once for all, the Bible says. It's not needed over and over again anymore. It's been done once for all. And you can receive that. But do you see him as priest? Do you see him and recognize him as judge? John is conveying to the church that that's who he is seeing. And he's not just seeing it in God the Father, he is seeing it in God the Son, Jesus Christ. If you ever need a proof that Jesus and the Father are the same, 
God? That they have equal authority as the almighty God? Eternal, everlasting God? This is a proof text. This is a proof text. He sees a vision of the glorified Christ. When you see Jesus, when you think of Jesus, who do you see? What do you see? You know, sometimes I think, like, I've heard it said, like, well, I like, the the, the Jesus I like best is the one in the manger. Because he's kind of cute, and lovable, and he doesn't say much. Right? And we get, like, a notion of who Jesus is in our minds, and we start to kind of build our lives and our faith around that Jesus. And the question is, do you, have a, do you have a good view of who Jesus is? John received a revelation of who Jesus is right now. He's in heaven. He's not in a manger, and he's not hanging on a cross. He is in heaven interceding at the Father's right hand. He is in heaven. He is among, walking among the lampstands of the church, making sure that the lights are staying burning. He is interacting through the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we might live as the light of the world, as a testimony for who he is and what he's done, for the hope that he brings and offers. Who do you see when you, look at, when you think of Jesus? Are you seeing Christ for who he truly is? He is both Savior, priest, king, and judge. Amen? Verse 17, and when I saw him, oh, this is cool. When John saw Jesus for who he truly is, he couldn't stay on his feet. Church, we need to get off of our feet and onto the ground. We need to fall down before the Lord. Not not necessarily physically. If you're charismatic, you're welcome to do that. You don't have to, though. But it should be in your heart that you fall prostrate before the Lord, that you fall in a way that submits your will to his, that you say, God, you are on the throne, I'm not. So that means you get to call the shots in this life, and I submit to them. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Oh, the beauty of Jesus is he wants you to fall because he is that holy He is that glorious. That should be the only response. When Daniel saw a vision of the throne, what did he do? He fell down. When Isaiah saw a vision of the throne, what did he do? He said, woe is me. I'm not even worthy to live anymore. When John sees a vision of the true Jesus, he falls down. God wants that response. That should be a natural response when we see Jesus for who he truly is. But he doesn't leave us there. He encourages us to get up and get moving for him. Amen. Listen to this. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. And the living one, I was dead. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Very important passage here to relate to what he's saying. Isaiah 44, verse 6, this is what the Lord, this is what Yahweh, this is what the everlasting one, the God of the universe, 
The king of Israel and its redeemer, the Lord of hosts, says, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Did you just hear what Jesus himself said to John when he touched him on the shoulder and said, do not fear, do not fear. I am the what? I am the first and I am the last. He is saying, I am God. John, I am God. Worship me as such. If you ever hear any other religion, any other teacher say Jesus is not one with the Father, that he is not God in the flesh, you need to walk out that door. Because that's a lie. Because the Bible makes it clear over and over that Jesus is God. Let me ask you this question. We're going to wrap up here. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. What does it look like to have a genuine encounter with Jesus? What does it look like to have a genuine encounter with Jesus? John had a genuine encounter with Jesus. He was blessed to have many encounters with Jesus, was he not? On his earthly life, but here he's seeing him in his full glory. Is there evidence in your life that you've ever met Jesus? Because let me just say this, if you haven't fallen to your face before Jesus, you probably haven't met him. If you're still thinking you're in control of your life and you get to call the shots, you probably haven't met him. Because when you meet Jesus, when you see the real Jesus, it should change you. It should rock your world. It should put you on your knees. Is there evidence in your life that you've met him? He doesn't want you to, he wants you to stay there in your attitude, on your knees, but he also wants to use you. And he wants to bless you and he wants to strengthen you to use your gifts, your calling for him. He doesn't want you to live life afraid. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity but one of power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about your Lord. Those are the words that Paul wrote Timothy, and they're still true to us today. Therefore, verse 19, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. Listen to me very clear, clearly. I've never seen in the Bible, as far as I know, an inspired outline of what's to come. But here we go. This is the inspired verse that outlines the whole book of Revelation. Therefore, write what you have seen. What did you just see? He just saw Jesus on the throne. Write it down. Okay? What is? What is is the church. The church that existed. The condition of the church. The message that Jesus had for the church. And what will take place after this. After what? after the church is gone, the end of the world, the, the, bringing everything to fulfillment under the authority of Christ. That's the outline for the book of Revelation. And I want to encourage you to study it, to listen to it, to hear the words that John presents. And hopefully, Don and I are going to partner up in April, and we're going to continue this series in a smaller group setting where you can ask questions. Right? Because this doesn't, this format right here doesn't allow you to ask questions. If you raise your hand, I tell you, 
quiet down, right? But we can do it in a classroom setting on a Wednesday night starting in April. Look for that because we're going to just dive through the first three chapters together on Sundays, and then we're going to go further on Wednesdays. Amen? The book of Revelation, I'm going to wrap up with these things, is intended to do these things. Number one, exalt Jesus. Remember, it's a revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of you. It's not a revelation even of the church. It's not a revelation of cool things that are about to happen. It's not what it's a revelation of. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's intended to exalt Christ and magnify who he is. Number two, it's a, it's a, it's a letter that's in, designed to encourage his church. See, they were going through persecution. And when we're going through persecution, we need good news. We need encouragement. We need to know that there is a victory coming. And that's what they need. When you have assurance for your future, you can have stability for your present. Number three, it's a book, it's a letter designed to expound upon biblical symbols and themes. Some of the symbols are explained. Some are understood because of the Old Testament. And some of the symbols are not explained at all. They're left for us to ponder. It's a mystery. And God is a God of mystery. We don't know everything. We won't know everything. I love Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. You know what it says? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those revealed to us and our generations forever. That's the truth. There's some things that God just doesn't want us to know. When the seven thunders were about to speak, John was about to write it down, and God said, nope, don't write that down. Thanks a lot, God. You don't want us to know what the seven thunders were about to say. Nope, God said that's not for them. Next, it's a, it's a book of end. It ends prophetic revelation. It's the climatic book in the Bible. As a matter of fact, Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, insists that you should not take anything away from the book, nor should you add anything to the book. Or God will take your name out of the book of life, or he will add to you all the plagues that are contained within this book. So it's, it's the final revelation. It's the end of the story. There's no more. It's the end of prophetic revelation. It's also in, designed to engage readers with relevant truth. You know, the promise of Jesus Christ coming, it should be for all of our, us as believers a motivation for obedience and consecration to his truth. Amen? If we know that dad's coming home, suddenly we get in gear and get all our chores done. Do we not? Well, maybe not some of our sons and daughters. But God's authority, we need to take seriously. And finally, it's a book designed to enrapture us with the majesty, the mystery, and the mighty power of God. Revelation is a book that's about the throne room. As a matter of fact, throne, the word throne is found 46 times in this book alone. John wants to take us to the throne room of God. This morning as we respond, as we wrap up, I just want to pray. And I want to ask God to take us to his throne room. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ that's contained in this writing from John known as Revelation. And we just, we ask that you enlighten us, God, to how you want to use 
this revelation in our lives. And God, we wanna see you for who you truly are. We wanna respond to you like you want to be responded to. God, take us into the reality of your throne room in heaven and change us. Make us more like you. Make us have the confidence to live out our faith in this world like we should. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.